Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show, my brand new free podcast. Uh, when I'm doing anything and Tom Cotton comes on, I stop uh, and I listen, and it always uh, repays itself to do that. Senator Cotton, of course, is senator from Arkansas, and we want to talk to him about a number of things. Thank you, Senator Cotton, for joining us. Thanks, Bill. It's nice to be on with you. The feeling is mutual. Anytime I walk by a TV and I hear Bill Bennett talking, <laughs> I, I stop and listen. I can save you that. I can do it all in about 10 minutes, tell you everything I know. Anyway, <laughs> appreciate that. You know, actually, some of the uh, very best uh, I've heard from you in recent times are your interviews with Steve Wynn. Oh, uh, thanks. That were simulcast on the Hugh Hewitt Show. I mean, you and Steve together just have so much insight. Steve is a fascinating guy. He really is. He really is. Yeah, he's got a heck of a story, heck of a success story. Amazing. Okay, I wanted to ask you about something in the news today, uh, which is uh, I just saw Lindsey Graham, and he was talking about the whole situation with the FBI. He and Senator Whitehouse, I think, asked Jim Comey, to tell them whether a criminal investigation was going on because they didn't want to mess that up with uh, House or Senate investigations. Can you tell us anything about this? I guess it was two weeks ago or more, uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, no answer from Comey yet. I gather that Lindsey Graham and Sheldon Whitehouse on their subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee uh, are having a hearing, I, I think, today, and they've asked... Jim Comey, if there are any criminal investigations in Russia's activities in our political system last year. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising if the director has told them that that he can't discuss a criminal matter. That's the standard posture of the FBI with any committee of Congress. But I guess their point would be that uh, we need to know, if, at least if there is an investigation, yeah. so our hearings don't interfere with your investigation, and maybe they expect Jim Comey to tell them that today. I'll say, as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, we've had a very long-standing and wide-ranging inquiry into Russia's activities in our political system last year. Uh, Jim Comey is obviously a part of that. The FBI not, is not just a law enforcement agency. It's our main counterintelligence service, and I have encouraged the director uh, to be uh, um, outspoken in public uh, to the extent he can without compromising those counterintelligence activities okay. about exactly what did or did not happen. I think it's best if we hear more information from the director uh, that might dispel some of the wild-eyed, hair-on-fire conspiracy theories you read in the media or hear from certain Democrats. Okay. The request of Comey, the distinction here, shouldn't they shouldn't ask him about the content of any criminal investigation that might be going on, but it's okay to ask whether there is a criminal investigation. I, I personally, uh, Bill, don't see any, any problem with that. I, I do okay. think it's important that okay. your listeners know, and I hope that Senator Graham, Senator Whitehouse, will indicate at their hearing that the FBI, again, is not just a law enforcement agency, but our main counterintelligence service. Yeah. And in addition to, to investigating things like bank fraud or wire fraud or kidnapping, all those classic Elliott Ness style activities, they also conduct counterintelligence investigations all mm -hmm. the time. And those use a different set of legal authorities. They uh, draw upon a different set of agents, uh, and they very rarely lead to criminal activities because the point is not to develop a case that can be prosecuted. The, the point is to figure out what foreign powers are up to on our soil. 
Good, good reminder. Thank you. I got uh, just two questions on Obamacare, and then I want to ask a little bit about foreign policy. One of the other people whom I stop and listen to when I hear him on TV, the radio, is uh, Paul Ryan. Uh, you know, Paul worked for me. I think the world of him. I know you have great regard for him too. But you guys disagree on this. I don't want to uh, get into a you know two scorpions here or two great men having an argument. I just want to get to the to the point. You've been eloquent in talking about um, you know this three stage process being kind of kind of make believe or um, made up. Um, is there? a way to get Republicans on board, enough Republicans on board, to get it through the House, to send it to the Senate, whatever the package is, and get 60 votes in the Senate for something that will replace. Is there any way to get 60 votes, any package, by sticking to conservative Republican principles? Bill, I'm very doubtful that we can get eight eight or more Democrats in the Senate to to vote with us based on their public statements about health care as well as their voting patterns over the last two months. They've talked a good game at times, but uh, they've had one of the most partisan lockstep voting patterns in a new presidency uh, in recent times. That's why I think we have to focus on getting this bill right right now. Uh, As you say, the three-phase process is really just spin because it presumes that in phase three we would get those eight or more Democrats. But if we had that, we wouldn't be struggling right now to get legislation. Uh, that's why we have to get this legislation right. I think it's much more important that we get health care reform right than get it fast. All right. Uh, but sticking with your premise here, if we get it right, uh, I know Republicans get it right by your lights, let's concede that, uh, and go to the Senate, we're not going to get 60 votes anyway. Are we then in the position of saying we put our best foot forward, our best proposal forward, you guys rejected it, it's on you? No, Bill, because this bill can be considered under special budgetary rules in the Senate, which just require a simple majority vote. Uh, Obamacare obviously had huge, far-reaching budgetary impact on taxpayers because of all the taxes and all of the spending. Uh, and there's a, a mechanism in the Senate that allows us to pass legislation uh, that has such budgetary impact by a simple majority vote. Part of the pr- part of the problem we're dealing with the House bill right now is, is that I don't think they're taking full advantage of those special uh, that special mechanism, and therefore this bill is not, in my opinion, going to solve the problem. And I'm more focused on solving a problem than I am passing a bill. Just labeling and, and generics. Um, is this a, what you just described a reconciliation bill, or is it something else, some other category? Yes, sir. Uh, okay. at, the ri- at the risk of causing all of your uh, listeners to turn the dial to the right. Yeah, there's a process called reconciliation. It's, it's reconciling yeah. the budget, making the numbers add up. Um, it's been in the Senate for you know, 10 or 20, 30 years or so. Um, actually, maybe 40 years. It goes back to the mid-1970s. Major legislation has passed under reconciliation. Um, the Bush tax cuts in the 2000s passed. Uh, a large part of Obamacare passed under reconciliation. So there's nothing unusual about this process when you have a bill with such major budgetary impacts. Okay. Um, but it can be complicated, and, and it doesn't always uh, yield the, sa- the same views from the House and the Senate. That's what we need to focus on right now is getting alignment on the way to fix our health care problems and get that through the reconciliation process. Okay, my producer, Chris Beach, who's listening, he can chime in if he wants, ask me to ask you this question. Why not pass the reconciliation part and then do a separate bill with everything we want and fight for that in the Senate? Uh, and, is the and, answer and to that? Be, go ahead. There's a good chance we will do that um, for those things that we cannot fit with inside this special mechanism. Um, however, we have to recognize that more likely than not, the Democrats will filibuster uh, that uh, bill at a later uh, date. And therefore, we can't count on that kind of legislation in the future 
fixing our health care problems. That's why we have to fix them to the greatest extent possible right now. All right, so even if the House and Senate listen to you on this, we're going to still end up with missing parts, missing pieces, which we're not going to get in the Senate uh, later on. Yeah, a good example, Bill, would be medical malpractice reform um, as it applies to, say, Medicare and Medicaid, other federal programs. Uh, It's hard to see how that would fit within the special mechanism, something that I I would support. Most Republicans would support as well. But that may be something that we would have to bring up at a later date. Uh, If the Democrats want to filibuster it, that's their choice. Then they have to answer to the voters next year. Okay. Chris, did you want to add to this? Because you're, I think, uh, pretty sophisticated on this. The, without getting too much into the weeds, the only thing I was going to oh, ask... Oh, come on. We're in the weeds already. We already are. The only thing I was going to ask uh, the senator is then what is the basic difference between your preferred reconciliation bill and the reconciliation bill that Speaker Ryan is pushing right now? Uh, so let me break the bill down in two big parts, Medicaid and the individual insurance market. The Medicaid provisions in the House are, are pretty good. They're about 70% uh, right, I would say. There are a few ways to work on the edges of that language to give the governors more flexibility and discretion, hold them more accountable for the exercise of that flexibility and discretion, ensure that we're solving problems of the long-term uh, explosive growth and inefficient spending of Medicaid. But again, I think we can, we can fix those with some relatively straightforward changes. The individual market provisions, though, need a lot more work because they do not get at the core reason why Obamacare has been driving up premiums, and that's all the insurance regulations uh, on the individual okay. insurance right. market. Um, now, some people say, well, that, those are policy matters. Those aren't budgetary matters. Uh, and I would respond, look, we all know, and economists have demonstrated time and time again, that those regulations are driving up the cost of premiums, which means they are costing taxpayers billions and billions of dollars in subsidies on the Obamacare exchanges. So, of course, from a practical, common-sense point of view, they have a massive budgetary impact. Okay, understood. I'm sure we've kept our listeners. Let me move quickly to foreign policy, since, after all, as John Jay says in an early Federalist paper, safety is the main responsibility of the government. Status of U.S. forces in uh, Iraq. We're getting this good news that Mosul is about to be taken back. Um, we do have some ground forces there, don't we, either in support or on the line? We have several thousand ground forces uh, throughout Iraq, uh, and that includes in the vicinity of Mosul. They're not on the very front lines, Bill, as I and my soldiers were in 2006, kicking down the doors and shooting the bad guys. But they do provide some very critical, you know, professional enabling skills uh, that a, you know, army like Iraq's does not yet have. Uh, How critical is taking back Mosul? What does that mean in the larger picture? Well, you know, Mosul's the second largest uh, city in Iraq, and uh, it's also the place where the Islamic State came roaring out of Syria and into Iraq. So I think it would be a very big victory uh, for the United States and our coalition, very big blow to the purported claims of the Islamic State of establishing caliphate to take back Mosul. And it will continue the process of rolling uh, the Islamic State up through the river valleys of Iraq and finally into Raqqa, their headquarters. Right. Should we, I want to go to Raqqa in a second. Should we revisit the question of more troops in Iraq? Should the president? Uh, so, so I would defer initially uh, to our commanders in the field and our uh, uh, combatant commander. That's not to say I would let them make that decision, but uh, you know, I know they've given the president okay. a set of revised courses of action. I would evaluate those to make that decision. Uh, let's go to Raqqa. Let's go to Syria. Uh, I was kind of surprised, uh, as you know, my son's a Marine. One of my sons is a Marine. Uh, Marines are in Syria. Um, fairly significant number. It didn't seem to make big news. This is ground troops. On, this mm-hmm. is American troops on the ground in Syria, correct? 
Yeah, so we've had uh, numerous troops, primarily special operations forces, in various places yep. in Syria with our proxies for a while. Uh, recently, though, conventional Marine artillery forces have arrived on the outskirts of, of Raqqa. Again, this is one of those uh, things that, you know, uh, proxy forces, uh, indigenous um, trained forces oftentimes lack heavy artillery or well-trained uh, artillery men. You know, that's a, that's a skill that can be uh, very hard to learn. Um, so we've got Marines many miles away from the front lines, but because of the range of our artillery guns, they're able to put well-aimed fires on uh, bad guys in Raqqa to support some of our proxy forces in Syria. Okay. All right. Do you expect we'll see more Marines, more military in Syria? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Again, the uh, the combatant commanders uh, and Secretary of Mattis, I know, have submitted uh, okay. a revised possible uh, strategy for the president. I would look at what they recommend, and I'd probe that before I make a decision about the number and kind of troops we need. I'd say that in the end, we we need the troops to accomplish the strategy. We don't need to fit the strategy to an arbitrary number or type of troops, right. like what Barack Obama did for eight years. Right, and the president has said he wants to eliminate ISIS, right? I mean, he wants Absolute. to. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Last question, and we'll let you go. We're very grateful again, Senator Cotton. Um, North Korea, is it is truly a serious threat to us uh, in itself, or is our worry about the involvement of China at a later at a later stage? I was watching TV the other day, and I had Gordon Chang, whom I like very much, who used to have him on our radio show a lot, said, uh, North Koreans could launch all their missiles, and one of those missiles could reach the United States. What's your read on that? Well, no North Korea has a lot of missiles, uh, Bill. Uh, unfortunately, we've got tens of thousands of American troops and citizens in places like Japan and yep. South Korea and yep. Guam um, that are already uh, susceptible sure. to massive North Korea missile fires. Uh, and if they are able to marry, on the one hand, their nuclear weapons... To, on the other hand, to those missiles in a successful uh, warhead, and of course, their susceptible nuclear attack. And Gordon is right that North Korea is working in particular on two intercontinental missiles, one of which, which would hold at risk most of the Pacific Northwest, one of which that would hold at risk basically everything in the United States. Um, and I, I don't think that in the long run, the American people are prepared to accept someone like Kim Jong-un uh, having a nuclear-armed intercontinental missile aimed uh, at our homeland. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and there are things we can do about this, right? Uh, Apart from sanctions are, and shaking our finger and other things, right? There are. It's a lot of it will involve, as you suggested, bringing more pressure to bear on China. Um, also, doing taking some actions with missile defense, both in the theater right. and on the west coast and in Alaska and Hawaii. Um, but ultimately, there are a lot of you know bad choices around yes, North Korea. Sir. But the worst choice of all is letting uh, a madman hold at risk the entire United States with a nuclear-armed intercontinental missile. And last question, missile defense. I mean, you mentioned it. We, we need it there. I guess they, they have the THAAD capability now in South Korea. We just sent that over. But what about the U.S.? We need greater capability in missile defense. Do we not for down the road? We do. And uh, we, so we have a ground-based missile defense system now. We need to expand that in part because you have to fire a lot more interceptors to hit a missile than uh, uh, just one, um, and we have more threats than just North Korea. I think it's great that South Korea finally accepted the THAAD 
theater missile defense system. We might want to entertain the possibility of whether Japan needs that. We also might need to invest in new and advanced kinds of missile defense. You know, it's much harder yeah. to hit a missile when it's falling out of space uh, right over your territory than it is in the boost phase when it's getting off the launch pad. It's slow. It's very hot for infrared detection. I think we need to th- consider investing in new and advanced kinds of missile defense as well, given the threat that North Korea poses. Do you know if any of that is part of the increase in the defense spending? Uh, we haven't gotten the budget yet, so we don't okay. know the break line, but I'll okay. break down, but I certainly believe it will be based on the Good. president's uh, statements in the campaign. we got to let you go. Every morning we thank the Lord and the people of Arkansas for you being there. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Cotton. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Um, I want to talk about something else for a bit, uh, something that's very much in the news. I'm joined by Christopher Beach. He was my producer for my radio show, Morning in America. He's now the editor of Real Clear Education. Christopher, good morning. Great to be with you, Dr. Bennett. All right, what do you want to talk about? I uh, There's a lot going on. Boy, is there a lot going on. Let's talk about Middlebury College. I've, you know, for the past couple of weeks, seen the coverage on the news. You were on Fox News earlier this week talking about it, and I really am curious to know what you think of the situation, and I have some particular questions about it. I want one thing particularly about Middlebury, this is, of course, Charles Murray, the uh, distinguished social scientist, brilliant man, uh, known him for years, been close, we were close for years. Um, he um, came to Middlebury uh, to give a speech, and they wouldn't let him speak. They uh, hooted and screamed and hollered uh, in the lecture hall for 40 minutes. The president of the college stood up there and said, well, I disagree with Murray, I disagree with Murray, but let him speak, let him speak. Uh, they didn't let him speak, so he went to a private room with a professor who was asking him questions, and they piped out the uh, the, the Q&A uh, to the campus. But when they were leaving, uh, the students who had been protesting became uh, a mob on feet, a moving mob, and uh, banged on the car, hurt the professor, pulled her hair, or twisted her neck. Uh, she had to wear a neck brace. Uh, real mob, uh, Real mob stuff. Now, I think most people know that, Chris. Um, what has struck me as interesting is a couple of smart people, I think Roger Simon, one of them, some others have said, ah, this would be the tipping point. This is it. The whole country saw this, and this will change things. Why would someone say that? This has been going on for a long time. I mean, I have a history here. I've been protested, and uh, usually uninvited. I've never been kept from speaking, but I've had some very, very, you know, sort of trying and uh, challenging circumstances. I've had any number of times gone to a campus and had a president or a dean introduce me and then vanish off the stage, (laughs) making it clear they want nothing to do with me or my views. But why would people think this would be a watershed? Do you have any idea? It may be because of the amount of commentary, the amount of ink that was spilled afterwards. Uh You You had people all across the political spectrum denouncing it. But what was interesting is if you read some of the statements from Middlebury after the fact, uh, they put out a primer, sort of things to know about the Middlebury incident. Most of it is focused on distancing themselves from Charles Murray. So it doesn't seem like the actual, the the college, the administration, uh, and, and who knows about the students, um, are on a different page now, have turned a page. They missed the point. They missed the point. That this thugocracy, this uh, group of thugs, kept a uh, distinguished uh, man from speaking, uh, and then roughed, tried to rough him up, and roughed up one of their own professors. This is insane. This is crazy. 
this is mob behavior. This is, you know, brown shirt stuff. It's it's nuts. Um, and you pay $62,000 for your kid to go and be in the midst of these people or, God forbid, become one of these people? What is uh, what what is going on? What should, in your opinion, what should the administration have done? How should they have handled it? Because there were a lot of signs leading up that there was going to be a big protest. And the administration's, you know, they paid lip service to the fact that we don't disrupt people. We don't want to block free speech. But then once the protests happened, no one stopped them. Well, this way, I have a lot of experience in this. Um, I should tell you, I was called once the the dean for student riots at Boston (laughs) University. I remember I was voted one of the 10 most repressive administrators in the country. Oh, my gosh. Chris Beach in 19, um, I think, 73, 74. Um, by the Revolutionary Communist Youth Party. That's a distinction in its own way, I guess. One of the, you know what my you know what my uh, sin was, my mortal sin, my felony. You know what it was? It's probably more than just one, but what well, was no, it? the main offense was a, a Marine recruiter came to campus. They tried to block access for anyone to see the Marine recruiter, and I escorted a student, Richie Feldman, I'll never forget uh, to see the Marine recruiter. My jacket was hmm. torn off me and other things. But uh, for that, I, uh, I entered the Revolutionary Communist Youth Hall of Fame of, uh, <laughs> of, of, uh, of villains. Um, here's what they should have done, and this is the sort of thing we did at Boston then under John Silver's leadership, and I've seen done elsewhere. By the way, do you recall, we could, you, you could recall for the, uh, for the audience when I'm done what Ohio State did. Do you remember how impressive they were when they had that occupation of that building? And uh, the dean or the vice president said, you know, you got so much time to leave, after which you'll be arrested, suspended, thrown out of school, whatever. But we can talk about that in a minute. Here's what you do. The president of the college, she can go up and it's a she, wasn't it? Isn't right. It? Yes. She can go up and distance herself from Charles Murray, but she can say, good evening. This is Charles Murray's lecture. I just disagree with everything he writes, et cetera, et cetera. But he, this is a campus. He's been invited to speak. He will speak. He will be allowed to speak and you will let him speak. If you do not let him speak, uh, we will um, remove you uh, from the from the lecture hall, uh, and uh, you will be warned about this, and if you don't, you will be removed. Uh, say that once, say it a second time, then say, now I am turning it over to the campus police or the local police, I don't know what they've got in Middlebury. Um, and then you find the, just for appearances, this is clearly for appearances, you find the smallest, slightest, female police officer you can uh not some big burly guy with you know sunglasses and a and a, and a machine gun like the guy who was facing down elian gonzalez you know uh, a, a preferably a female police officer because the rule of law is not about physical force it's about the rule of law something more subtle and you're making that point and that uh, officer gets up in uniform in front of the crowd and says you are now directed to uh cease and desist uh, and let the man speak. Otherwise, you will be removed and charged with disorderly conduct. Uh, you do that once, you do it twice. If they don't calm down um, and they and they keep protesting the speech and not letting the man speak, you remove them. Then you have your backup police officers. You have whatever you need uh, and they can call in backup at Middlebury. There's you know, there's state police, there's local police, and you remove them. They're in violation of law. This is disorderly conduct. By the way, later later on, this mob was in violation of a more serious law, which is assault. Right. Um, and um, so that, that, I believe, is what you do. 
Uh, now, it's possible that if they'd had that administrator, I'll ask you to elaborate just a little from your memory, that they had at uh, Ohio State, he spoke so forcefully and so directly, the students reacted and moved. Uh, can you recall any of that? Yeah, no, you pretty much had the details right. The one thing that they did in addition to threatening them uh, for being arrested was they threatened expulsion from school. Yeah, right. And that seemed to move students out the door. Yeah, well, I think if you threatened expulsion uh, from Middlebury, this would have maybe even a big, bigger effect. In-state tuition at Ohio State, what is it, 8000 10000 12000 a year, something like that? Probably. You know, you know what it is at Middlebury? Sixty-two grand, 62000 I mean, by the way, they're way overcharging for what they deliver. Um, so, you know, mom, dad, I got expelled. <laughs> what? We put, uh, can I get a tuition refund? No, you can't. So that's what they should have done. And that is showing respect for the rule of law. Um, many years ago, a scholar, I think it was Eva Brand, not broad, Eva Brand at uh, St. John's wrote that these little republics, these college campuses, these universities depend for their strength on the larger republic and its ideals and the vitality of its ideals. Free speech is one of those ideals. And when they fail on this front, uh, it is, um, it is uh, a major failure. By the way, what else you know, could be a more distinguishing mark for a college or university than open inquiry? Uh, into serious intellectual matters. And if what Charles Murray is talking about is not serious intellectual matters, I don't know what is. Well, let me ask you one other question then. What would you have done if you were Charles Murray? Uh, let me say two things. First of all, follow-up we shouldn't ignore. Uh, there's a student, apparently, I learned this on Fox, at the college who's trying to get his letter of protest against these uh, this mob into the student paper and they won't publish it which is ridiculous i hope that kid is safe and uh and uh, somebody's looking out for him because that mob may descend on him uh god forbid um but somebody did get something published and that was the professor who interviewed murray uh and she allison stanger i think is her name and she uh published an op-ed in the new york times um People can read the whole thing, uh, but um, the upshot of it was she blamed not the students, not the administration, not Charles Murray. She blamed Trump for this because of the environment and atmosphere he's created. Unbelievable, you know, this is Trump, Donald Trump's problem. Uh, and then it's a it's an entirely ridiculous. Tell you, you want to know what's wrong with academe? Read this. Read this op-ed. New York Times. I think was it last Monday? Monday the thirteenth. Yeah, funny though. Funny just again the academic mind at the end. She said, by the way, although I have fundamental disagreements with Murray, he's not all bad. Uh, he's strongly for same-sex marriage and is as has been a strong never Trumper. <laughs> so so there you go. He's got his kudos for him. He's wearing a badge of a certain degree of honor by her lights. What Charles Murray should have done is stood there while he was introduced, stood there while the um, president said, we will have free speech, we will, you know, this will be conducted. He could have even stood there when the police issued its first warning. After the second warning, if the din continued, he should have left. Now, how long did he stand there on stage? Like, they say 40 or 50 minutes? He was, in total, he was there about 30 minutes, I think. It's too long. Um, I just don't think you have to stand there and take that abuse for 30 minutes. Um, I think he could say, um, I'm going off stage, I'm going to get a cup of coffee, 
if and when I'm given the opportunity to speak, I'll come back. But he doesn't stand, stand there and need to take the booze and the catcalls. Uh, also, you know, you could argue that his walking off the stage could, could depressurize it. Some people may disagree with me. He should stay, stay, stay. Um, I don't think so. Uh, wait till order's restored and then come back. You know, he's got things to do. He's a busy man. There is no reason this man should be subjected to that kind of treatment. Um, uh, at his, by the way, I think it's his daughter's alma mater. Um, for uh, for a sustained period of time. Shame, shame, shame on these students. Shame, shame, shame on these administrators. Where are the trustees? Have we heard anything from the trustees, Chris Beach? We have not at heard Middle, much. Middlebury? It'll be interesting. I'll let you know if I get some mail from my TV appearance <laughs> or this podcast. Which or an invitation to commencement. Oh, yeah, please. Please, please, please. That's all I got to say. But, I again, I want to go back to the question, the hinge on which we started this. Is this the end of the road? Will this stop? I, I don't think so. Uh, if it does, great. But I, I see I see don't see counterforces, counterpressures on these campuses of courageous men and women leading um, in the other direction. Maybe in a few places like Ohio State, but elsewhere I just don't see it. Okay, let's get back uh, to a conversation. This is a conversation with someone I respect very much, and that's Steve Wynn, Chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts. And some of you who've been listening uh, heard what Senator Tom Cotton has said about these conversations with Steve Wynn. So let's resume. Steve Wynn, as I said, Chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts, and also the Finance Chairman of the Republican National Committee. Hey, Steve, the last few weeks we've talked about Trump's successes so far, but every time I turn on the TV and watch the mainstream media, I'm blown away by only negative coverage. What do you make of the press so far? I think the opposition is really unprecedented. Can this level of intense opposition remain for four years or even eight years? I think there are two separate dynamics here. Okay. They're the critics, the media, the talking heads, and politicians who are very close to all of this and count every minute and every second and have something to say about each one of them. And then there's the rest of the people in the United States of America who are busy tending to their own lives, paying attention to big stuff, and don't have the patience, the curiosity for all of this trivia that, it, that we see on cable news. There's a bunch of us that watch all this every day. And, you know, moment to moment, we think that the, it's a, a, a story being written by the second. In fact, most people aren't paying much attention to it. And you would never judge any executive, public or private, by his performance in 30 days. Uh, Bush 43, George said that history judge these administrations, but the judgment is not complete until time has passed. Yep. You being a historian, have to understand, you know, must know that much better than I do. So I, I, when you ask me how is he doing, He's creating a lot of excitement. Mm -hmm. He's trying to get this government off the dime. He's trying to keep his promises. And in many respects, he's taking serious steps to do exactly that. But he needs his cabinet. He needs cooperation with the legislature. He needs to present his case, which he'll formulate and do in, in, very, in very short order. And I think then we'll begin to understand the wisdom or possibly the lack of it. But I think the wisdom of, of the administration that he's assembled, 
I think America's in for a good deal, actually, when, when all the smoke clears and we stop listening to the chatter of short-term voices. And, it, and sometimes that noise is deafening, but it's claptrap. It's, it's static. It really is. Or, yeah. or as Shakespeare would say, sound and fury signifying nothing. But he's doing stuff. I mean, the first couple yep. of weeks, repeal Obamacare, approve the key, Keystone Pipeline. He didn't repeal Obamacare just or, yet. Well, to try, try and he's to not going to until they have a proper replacement. Keystone Pipeline. Talking about building Good the idea. Wall. Stop and fix the refugee program. Pro appoint a strict constitutional judge to replace Scalia. I mean, this is moving. I was at the White House the other night. How about that judge appointment? Yeah, impressive. Could he have done a better job? No, I don't think so. Than Neil Gorsuch? I don't think so. And, and it's tough. The Democrats won't end up filibustering this guy. They can't look in the mirror. They can't show their face if they try that. This guy is absolutely qualified. I mean, uh, Trump trumped yeah. him on this one. He, but, pick, he picked the right guy. But with the Super Bowl still in mind, I was at the White House the other night, and I ran into a couple of people. You know them. I won't repeat it on, on the radio here. But uh, I said, just remember Bennett's rule. The only thing I learned for sure in nine years in Washington said, like, football adds up to 60 minutes. It's divided between offense and defense. You are on offense or you are on defense. <laughs> Choose one. And he is certainly the president on offense. Yeah. But in Washington, I, I, when I came home this week from Washington, I looked at Andrea and I said, I, I, I have a theory about the people in Washington. I think they wake up, swing their feet over the bed, put on their socks, and go to war. Yeah. Yes. It is the most litigious, <laughs> the most adversarial, so. on nonsense most of the time. Everybody is playing a role and talking to the cheap seats. You know, I mean, instead of buckling down and getting something done. Right. Yeah. But I think I think Donald's going to make him do it. He's a businessman. He uh, he but wants is, results. But Steve, it's true though, right? I mean, you move your agenda if you're standing still. It's Donald Trump. Chuck Schumer will move his agenda. For sure. Okay. So, I mean, I, Schumer's a guy that's fascinating to me. He has got such cognitive dissonance now. Trump is president and wants to do immigration reform, health care fixing. He wants to do infrastructure. The more that Schumer cooperates with these solid, long overdue programs, the more he, under, he strengthens. Trump's position, the Trump administration, and the people that voted for Trump, he confirms their faith in this president and undermines the future power and reach of his own gang. On the other hand, if he strictly opposes it and stands in opposition, as so often the case of real progress on so many obvious issues that the American people want to see, he may weaken his party in that way. So one of the most interesting guys to watch as Donald Trump moves the government and tries to fix America in the manner that he's that he's he is attempting. One would be fascinating to watch Schumer try and walk the tightrope of not just being a blind, uh, belligerent obstructionist, to being a person that cares about the future of the people of America and making a better life for them. Did I ever tell you my Schumer story? No. I was at Harvard, Harvard Law School. I was a tutor, and we had a senior undergraduate who had written his paper, and um, I had to grade it, and I gave it a B plus, and the student appealed, and he came to see me, and it was Charles Schumer, 
And he said, Mr. <laughs> he said, Mr. Bennett, if you give me this B plus, I will not graduate summa cum laude. I'll only graduate magna cum laude. I said, magna cum laude from Harvard's not so bad. You know, I didn't do that. We argued and argued and argued. I promised I'd read it again. I came back. I said, you know, and he came back. I said, I'm inclined to give it a B. Down from a B plus, not up to an A minus. Well, that was it. I mean, I made the decision and he graduated magna cum laude. He did very well for himself. Do you know Depending that, on how you look at it. Do you know that about 25 years later at a hearing, he was chairing, the first thing he brought up to me was that paper. Did he, he remember it? Never forgotten. No, that's one of wow. the people who crossed him. That's another thing people in Washington count, you know. What's interesting is... Keep a count. If, if talk about keeping count. Trump is, Trump is the businessman. Yeah. Has been dealing with Schumer, the senator. Uh-huh. And now we have President Trump yeah. dealing with an old acquaintance, someone yep. with whom he's had a relationship over many years. How, Let, how interesting that's going to be. Let's talk about the world. You know so much. You've been so many places. You've made incredible uh, business uh, uh, deals and uh, done amazing things around the world. Sounds good the way you say it. Well... <laughs> wait, wait, and maybe you won't like the way this comes out. We've been talking about Donald Trump. What about China? I mean, we have heard Donald Trump talk about China. Uh, Trump's pledge to challenge China and to push mm -hmm. back. You know China and the Chinese very well. What, what, do you, what will happen, do you think, between the U.S. and China? If you care to tell us anything you've said to the president about it, we'd be interested. But that, if that's I've had the council. privilege of being there since 2001. Uh, both personally in terms of business and the benefits that come from it, but also in, in the, ex the life experience of being engaged in such a dynamic environment at, at a very interesting time in its history and this wonderful old culture. And I've learned and had to study the structure of the government there so that I could deal with it intelligently. The Communist Party is maybe 80 million people out of a billion 375 million people or a billion 380 million people. That is to say, the Communist Party, which controls the reins of power in the country, is a tiny minority of the population. And it's very self-conscious about that. And the Communist Party, you know, that word communist is automatically sort of a negative word in America, but in, in the context of discussing modern China, we should, let's just call them the party because it's very eclectic. It's not necessarily communistic in the Soviet Union style. You know, as, as Deng Xiaoping said in 1979 when asked, is this going to be a market-based economy or a socialist-based economy? He said, I don't care if it's a black cat or a white cat. As long as it catches mice, it's a good cat. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that, that, that empirical, eclectic approach has been the story of modern China that has taken three or 400 million people out of poverty in less than 40 years, a feat to use uh, a, a term of uh, Fareed Zakaria that has never been equaled or even approached to being equaled in the history of mankind. So this meritocracy that is the party in China, the smartest people rise to the top. And the overwhelming priority of that country is to take more people out of poverty and create a better life for Chinese citizens. And everything they do is directed towards that. 
even if it means building plants that are fired by coal, they need the jobs because people need the money. Well, so Xi Jinping, to use the present president's name, is a man dedicated to creating a better life and jobs and economic condition for his people. And he's steadfast in doing that. Whatever else you may say, that's clearly the theme of the Xi Jinping regime and the Communist Party leadership that's, that's currently managing. Donald Trump just got elected to be president of the United States primarily on the idea that he was going to better life in terms of health care and jobs for Americans. We have two leaders trying to do exactly the same thing for their people and getting very popular support because of it. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's change gears and talk economics. We're joined now by Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group, and Joel Farkas, who's a director of the American Strategy Group. Go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy to learn more about their work. By the way, I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group as well, so this is a home team conversation. In our previous segment, we discussed the three pillars of Trump's agenda, economic nationalism, national security, and deconstructing the administrative state. Today, we continue our discussion about economic nationalism. Now, Brian, one area we haven't touched yet is trade. Trump gets a lot of grief from the media for questioning free trade and talking about border taxes and tariffs. What's the ultimate agenda here? How should we think about these issues? Well, you know, I think... uh we talk, we talk, we joke about settled economic science. Well, settled economic science is that free trade is an unmitigated good and that, you know, fiat money is an unmitigated good, right? Central banking. Well, right now, they potentially both could be leading us to economic ruin. Trump is asking us to question these things, just to question them. And we might decide in that, in that debate there are some sensible tariffs. There's some sensible pressure that could be put on, you know, a China or Mexico or others by simply talking about it. And if it got to the point where we actually did have a cross-border fee, I just don't know whether, one, we don't know how much they would be. They could be pretty small, depending on, on what you were really trying to accomplish. But more than that, we also know human beings are willing often to pay more for a certain good. Yeah. Right. I mean, we don't we most Americans don't buy the cheapest thing, no matter what people spend all sorts of money on all sorts of things because they want quality. I think I think Americans will buy American goods if those goods were available to them. All right. Right now, they're not available simply because we've made we've made a system where manufacturing is an evil. Business is an evil. And Donald Trump wants to fix that. Good. Good. Let me throw a curveball at you, but I'm, I'm thinking, adding up what you guys are saying about trade and American independence uh, and economic nationalism. I just came across the other day uh, an interview with one of the smartest guys in the world, Peter Thiel. Uh, I know he's the smart, one of the smartest guys in the world because he was my intern once at the Department of Education, and I taught him everything he knows. Not just kidding. Just kidding. Never mind. But the little the guy didn't tell me about PayPal either. Anyway. Um, he wrote, uh, said the other day at a conference, the tide of globalism is going out. That is, globalism is in retreat. Um, nationalism is uh, is on the rise. Uh, the tide of globalism is going out when it regards to people, 
uh, look at, uh, you know, borders and so on. Uh, just spoke to a German citizen who said, you know, she's put the borders back up, Angela Merkel. She's put the guard, uh, the, the, the fences and the, and the walls back up, but they are quiet about it. Goods, um, our last conversation, perhaps even information. We think about Brexit. We think about other things. Does that make sense to either uh, of you? Let me start with Brian. Um, the tide of globalism is going uh, is going out. All the rage. He said uh, he predicted that not too many startups would have the word global in it in the next few years. Well, that that, that just seems like you know good common sense. We, we know that the nation state has been here to protect the citizens, or in some cases, the subjects of their individual countries. With Brexit, we saw that the, the British people wanted, be, wanted to be defended. They didn't feel like they were defended by being part of the EU. And so they decided to go with themselves. And now they think of themselves as, as, uh, as British again. Same is true with Donald Trump. Trump is defending the American people, the American nation. And I think when people see the success of the United States under Donald Trump, and this set of policies, they will likely want that for themselves. They will see that when a nation defends its own interests, good things can happen if you have good policymakers. Well, we see more of the Brexit-type uh, moves in, in the world. Uh, Joel, do you think? Do you think we'll see more of that? We will see Brexit-type moves. We will see uh, a lot of iterations. I think what also what Donald Trump, President Trump, is doing is – by eliminating regulations, by reducing regulations, he is allowing smaller, more nimble, more versatile, more innovative people and companies to exist. It is, it is clear that a regulation is a restriction. Whether you think it's a good regulation or not, it is a restriction. And when a restriction occurs, Power becomes concentrated in business, not just government, but in businesses where the largest are able to function in that environment. We had, uh, we, we had a Dodd-Frank Act not so long ago, which decimated the community banking system of the United States. And it was all predicated on some notion of being too big to fail. The effect was now, if you're a community bank, you're too small to exist. You can't, you cannot, we now have the number of federally reg regulated insti uh, banking institutions similar to what we had in the 1930s. That was the result of a restriction. And Donald, uh, President Trump's critics have these hashtags of resisting. Well, they, they should change it to hashtag restrict because that's what uh, a regulation does. And, okay. in the, uh, and another example is with uh, the, the Food and Drug Administration. There's not a, there, there's a, a, a host of rare diseases that have no capacity of doing any kind of clinical trial of any sort that, that takes 10, 15 years and thousands yep. of, of patients. And it's just nonsense to have a situation where a government eliminates the ability to cure rare diseases, eliminates the ability to have uh, community banks, and you, we can do, go down the list of almost every single de department that President Trump put a, uh, 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 on his cabinet, a new cabinet member. And that's what I believe President Trump is doing when he, and what, what uh, Steve Bannon says, 
when he's talking about deconstructing the administrative state. He's helping innovation. He's not, he's not, he's not concentrating power like some fascist. All right. But when he does these things, energy independence, um, border tax, immigration, um, and maybe this is done under the rubric and in respect to the pillar of economic nationalism, we know what the critics say. Let's take it at the extreme point. This is just a manifestation of xenophobia. This is jingoism, isolationism, etc. Brian, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, the critics are going to paint him in the most extreme way. But, I mean, in a way, to answer that, back to the teal point about globalism, if globalism means that you have to take in large Muslim populations who may want to kill you, if that is what globalism transfers practically to mean in everyday life, you can see where people don't want globalism. That, that doesn't make any sense to them. And I think that's one reason why Donald Trump is the president now of the United States. There's a certain disconnect between what's good for the American people and what's good for the commentators on MSNBC or what Wall Street may or may not want. Trump is out there defending the American people from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And he adds to that this concern that they have good jobs. And so if that's the enemy of globalism, I think most Americans would sign up. An isolationist would not promote the energy production in the United States, which now has uh, caused the United States to become one of the largest energy exporters in the world. That's not an isolationist. Good. That Good. is that is a president who is allowing the volatility of the energy industry to be competitive and, in some cases, dominant in the world. Okay, I see. Yeah, wouldn't be back to where we started. It's not really isolationist to uh, send a missile defense system to South Korea to help them against North Korea either, is it? Not at all. No, that, that's, a, that's a sign that we respect our allies and we respect our global commitments. Hardly an isolationist. Some, and some of these critics are the same people who think that the United States is at full employment. And President Trump campaigned and, and won because he realized and talked to people who were not employed. Uh, it's hard to take the advice or the commentary of those who, who promote that, that notion. Anything else on economic nationalism? Have we explained this pillar? What, is there anything else either of you would like to say? Brian? I think this is going to be the thing that Trump is remembered for the most. Okay. We've had, we've had you know, 50 years of large-scale immigration, a declining education system, except for when you were the Secretary of Education. I'm sorry. And, I wish I agreed with you. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I mean, no, as a practical matter, we've combined large-scale immigration with a bad educational system right. and with a highly regulatory environment, and we've shipped a lot of jobs in that mix overseas. And Trump wants to turn that around, and I, I think it could come none too soon. All right. We have to leave it there, Brian and Joel. Thanks so much. That's the show, folks. Make sure you're subscribed on iTunes and join us each week as we continue to cut through the noise and translate Trump. This is The Bill Bennett Show, free on iTunes.